Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Calvary Life DFW's weekly podcast. We hope that these messages encourage and inspire you in your personal journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. So first of all, I want to say that the, um, the disciples were really at a crossroads. And probably the church is probably only weeks old. I don't know exactly because it doesn't tell us. But it seems to be, the way the narrative unfolds, it seems like the church is very, very young. They have 2,000 added and the number grows to be 5,000. Well, in a few years' time, there are tens of thousands of believers in Jerusalem, or maybe more, I don't know. And, and it, just all, it, has the, it just has the feel of being very, very early in the church's experience. And so the, the point is that the church was literally facing the possibility of extinction at its very inception. Because I want you to remember this, that the people that were threatening these apostles was the very same group that had just very recently orchestrated the death of Jesus. I think it's important that we remember that. These guys meant business. They were serious. And the disciples knew that they were serious. And so the church had, that Jesus had been crucified, had been resurrected. The church had waited in prayer. The Holy Spirit had come upon them and filled them. And they preached the gospel and 3,000 people had been saved. And the people are gathering daily in the temple and gathering daily in houses and worshiping. And they're, they're just filled with revival. But boom, now comes the hammer. And they have, they really be, they have a decision to make. Are they going to listen to these Jewish leaders and be quiet? And the church would just basically die a slow death. Or are they going to just keep preaching and run the risk of being killed? The Jews would orchestrate with the Roman leaders and they would set it up that these guys are rebels and they are a threat to the Roman Empire and the Romans would move in and they would crush them. And it happened before. It happened many, many times in, that, in the Palestinian history, in the Jewish history, where there were rebels that began to try to shake off the Roman Empire and the Romans would come in and crush them. So I want you to realize how serious it really was. It wasn't just like, wow, you know, well, we got, we got threatened. It wasn't that. They were facing the possibility of the church being extinct within a few weeks of its beginning. And that's what they were up against. I want to I just spend a minute and, and just kind of think about the church in America. Um, in my classes, I always we talk about the possibility of the church becoming extinct in America. And that doesn't seem very possible, does it? I mean, when you think about it, the churches, there's churches on every corner. There's, I mean, half of America still considers themselves to be Christians. And it doesn't seem possible for the church to become extinct in America. But I, I want us to think about that for a minute. And, and I don't know if you're going to go down this little trail with me or not, but I hope you do. Because I want us to really take it serious what we're up against in the world today. The, um, 
the, there's just several nations that I want us to think about. I want us to think about the nation of Syria. Syria. I mean, how many, when I say Syria, that comes to mind as a Christian nation? Probably nobody, right? If you know your current events. It, does, it doesn't come to mind, but Syria at one point was the epicenter of Christianity. The, the city of Antioch had 500,000 people and half, 250,000 were Christians. I mean, it was the center of Christianity. But today, there's a small vestige of Christians in the nation of Syria, but very, very small. And they're persecuted. You could do the same thing with Egypt. Egypt was, I mean, it was the hot center of Christianity. Alexandria, I mean, it was the hub of Christianity. And now all we have basically, not completely, but mostly just have the Coptic church that's still there. And the Coptic church is, well, I mean, they're Christians. They're, it's kind of a convoluted um, faith, but it, they're still Christians. But that's it. That's all that's there. And you could just continue across. You could grow across North Africa to what is now Tunisia. That used to be the center of Christianity. St. Augustine was there. And it was like the, the hub of Christianity. Well, not anymore. And then you jump across the Mediterranean to Europe. And all of Europe was Christian. And now today, the, the basic reports are like less than 10% of Europeans are a part of the church today. One of the schools that I teach at, I teach online. At another, I teach at one school full-time, another school online. And I used to teach on campus at that school as well. And a couple of years ago, a number of students went on a mission trip to Europe from that school, King's University. And, um, and the students came back just amazed at how atheistic Europe is. And they said it was really strange because it wasn't like anybody was angry. They just didn't believe in God. And hardly anybody that they encounter. And they might even be involved in church. That might even be serving in church, doing something in church, but they didn't believe in God. And so I don't want to paint a bleak picture, but I do want us to think about the realities of America. We have, when I was a youth pastor, which that was a very long time ago, we, uh, we, we were told that the next generation coming up, that if the trend kept consistent, which would be the, actually the millennials today, wouldn't even be the youth of today, but the millennials today, that, they, that about 4% of that population would become evangelized. And that's actually about what it is. That's about accurate. So that means 96% of that generation is, does not know the Lord. And so... I, this really isn't my message, but I, I'm just wanting to set it up. These disciples realized they were up against a very, very difficult situation. And I think it's important for the church in America to take stock of where we are, think about what we're up against, and, and, 
and then respond. And so I want us to notice the response that the church had, how they responded. I think it has a great lesson for us. Number one, the number one thing they did, they immediately went to their own companions who they knew would be gathered in prayer. <laughs> they didn't go home. They got let out of jail, and they didn't, rush, they didn't rush home. They rushed to the church, wherever the church was gathered, where they knew the church would be gathered for prayer. The same thing happened to Peter in chapter 12 when he was arrested. Herod had killed James. The Jews were excited about it. And so Herod thought, hey, this is good. I can get some, make some strong points with the Jews. And so I'm going to now arrest Peter. And so he arrested Peter and he held him for a few days because he wanted to let Passover get passed. And so Peter was in jail in prison for I don't know how long, days, weeks, probably days. And the church gathered constantly in prayer. Peter was miraculously delivered. And he, what I want you to know, this is the middle of the night. So follow me. The middle of the night. He's miraculously delivered. And where did he go? He went straight to the household of John Mark's mother, Mary, where he knew people would be gathered in prayer. And they were. They were there together in prayer. And after kind of a little funny thing where the girl thinks, oh, no, he runs and leaves him standing at the door. But finally, he, he, he does get in, and they do talk to him. And now I want you to notice what happened. Two more things happened. Number one, he, after he assured them and let them know what had happened and told them the story, then it says he left to go to another place what other place was it? It was another house where people would be gathered in prayer. And he knew that. He knew because they didn't have church buildings. They met in houses. And so he'd gone to one house where he knew people would be gathered in prayer. And then he was going to go to another house where he knew people would be gathered in prayer. And before he left, he instructed them to go tell James and the other apostles who he also knew would be gathered in prayer. And so the church's first response to crisis was to gather together, and that's important, in prayer. When I was at AM as a campus pastor, I taught so much about corporate prayer. And in fact, I began to notice that the book of Acts doesn't even record anything about personal prayer. Very, very little. Some, but very little. It does talk about Peter being up in prayer and having a vision. And there are some instances where it talks about personal prayer, but very little. It almost all talks about corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. Pastor Gwimmar is, I tried to think of the right word to say here. He, he's gently chided us. Gently chided us. Gently corrected us for not being more responsive to the call to corporate prayer. It seems in today's church that it, it's not just our church, that when you call a prayer meeting, not very many people show up. But in the early church, it was the exact opposite. Prayer in fact, prayer meeting was the primary thing that they did as a church. They met for prayer. 
So I, I don't really have anything to say about that other than that is what it is. <laughs> and, and I think that we find, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, some of the crises that we're facing as a church, and we are facing crisis in our country. And what is our response? Are we responding with prayer? Are we responding and getting together in prayer? And I do, I am very thankful that shortly after the COVID shutdown began, I think Ben Rocio, I'm not sure who brought it together. Was it Ben Rocio? Facilitated us meeting together for Zoom prayer meetings. And, and I have to admit, the first two my wife and I didn't attend. Friday nights and Saturday mornings are sacred to us. That's when we have our Sabbath. But after a couple of weeks, we... It wasn't that we felt guilty. We just felt like we need to be a part of that. And so we, and there's very few things that we sacrifice. I used to tell my congregation, do not die on Friday night. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> very few things that we give up Friday night for. But we, we felt like it was so critical. And so we, we began joining the Zoom prayer meetings. And I was thankful for the few that were there. there. There were several that were there. But we could have been a lot more. So I don't want to try to make us feel guilty. Let me move on. So the number one thing that the church did when it faced crisis was gather together for prayer. So just let that say what it says, and then we'll process it later on what we want to do with that. Amen? The second thing that they did was they faced the facts. It says that they... They told everything that the Jewish leaders had said. They laid it out on the table. This is what we are up against. So I just want to talk a few minutes about kind of what we're up against as a nation. And obviously not everything. But we are facing two actually three primary cri major crises in our nation right now. Obviously, we're facing the whole COVID-19. We all look around, we see masks, and we're all, you know, many of us, and welcome those of us viewing from live stream. We're so glad you're here. Um, but many of us aren't even here because we're, we're nervous, we're worried. And, and, and the nation is just... We're just afraid. We're afraid. The second crisis that we're facing is racial tension. Um, racial tension is, is, I don't know that it's at an all-time high, but it's certainly at a high peak. Very, at a very high peak. And, and then thirdly, kind of resulting from those two things, we have economic crisis. I mean, I don't know how much longer our nation can withstand the economy being shut down. Well, that doesn't seem very spiritual, and I'm not teaching us about um, the crucifixion and all of that right now. Doesn't, so, but, but I think it's important for us as a church to, to face the facts to deal with realities and, and then set the course, what we're going to do about it. The church, I don't have much to say about COVID. I'm not going to say much about that, but, but I want to talk a little bit about the racial tension in our, in our nation. 
the church from the very beginning broke down racial barriers from the very beginning. The Jews were very racist people. In fact, they believed that, they, that in essence, every other nationality was inferior to them. Never mind that they're enslaved by Rome, but that's okay. But they still felt like they were above everybody. And they especially despised Samaritans. Samaritans were a mixed race people. <laughs> and, and they were part Jew, but they had a lot of other races mixed in. And the Jews despised them. But shortly after the church began, persecution began, and the church scattered, preaching the gospel everywhere they went, and Philip, who was just a deacon, just a deacon, went to Samaria and preached the gospel and great miracles and signs and wonders, and whole villages were saved. Peter and John, when they heard about it, they went to Samaria, they laid hands on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what that in essence said was, you are equally a part of the body of Christ with us for them to be filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, it took God a little bit, took him several visions and a couple rebukes, but finally he talked Peter into going to preach to the household of Cornelius, an Italian. <laughs> and he went, and he and the Jews who went with him were astonished because while Peter's still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and filled them just like he had filled them a few weeks before. And Peter said, I love this. And I think God did it that way because he knew they would never accept them. Peter said, well, we're going to have to baptize them because obviously God's accepted them. Right? So, yeah. So, yeah. So they, they realize, wow. Gentiles are included. And then they began to preach the gospel and more and more Gentiles began to get saved. And then the Jews, I mean, and I, I can't blame them. I, I mean, it's easy to sit back and find fault with them, but they were trying to figure it out. All these Gentiles are getting saved, but what are we going to do with them? And they thought, well, surely they got to become Jewish first, and then they can really be Christians. And then and, but they kept wrestling that through. And they had the famous Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and, and they wrestled it through. And the Holy Spirit led them to say, no, Gentiles can be Christians as Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews. And so the church led the way in racial diversity and reconciliation from its very inception, from its very beginning. In the Pentecostal revival that broke out in 1906 in Azusa Street, and from that revival, Pentecost spread around the globe. And there are more Pentecostals today than any other Protestant denomination. I don't know if you're aware of that, but... But we are the biggest group in the world next to Catholics. 
And it began, well, it actually began in 1901, but it really exploded in 1906 at what is called the Azusa Street Revival. Azusa Street was led by a black man. <laughs> yeah, it was led by a black man, a one-eyed black man. <laughs> and, and Bartleman, one of the historians of that era, he famously said that the color line has been washed away by the blood. <laughs> Hallelujah. The color line has been washed away by the blood. And so in Azusa Street, you would have, well, not just black and white, but all kinds of races gathered there. And some would be rich and some would be poor. And some, just imagine, this is 1906. The Civil War ended in 1865. Some of these were probably former slaves and certainly children of slaves. But they were sitting there together with all different races receiving the Holy Spirit. And for many years, the Pentecostal church led the way in the nation with racial unity until somebody had the bright idea that maybe we ought to split. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And they did. They split. The largest Pentecostal organization in America is predominantly black. Church of God in Christ. It is by far, in a way, the largest Pentecostal group in America. Not the largest Pentecostal group in the world. That would be the Assemblies of God. But, but it's the largest Pentecostal group in America. In the 80s or the 90s, I don't remember when, there was what was called the Memphis Miracle. It was when Pastor Jack Hafer was a part of it. I think Thomas Trask, I don't know that for sure. I think he was at that time the leader of the Assemblies of God and other white Pentecostal leaders met with the black Pentecostal leaders and they washed their black brothers' feet and repented for the division that they had caused by splitting the two groups. And we, there was a white Pentecostal organization for all Pentecostal churches and a black Pentecostal organization for all Pente black Pentecostal churches. And they dissolved both of those. And they created one new Pentecostal organization. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> so the church has, has a good history of dealing with racial issues. This past week, I don't know how to say this without it sounding weird and funny, but this past week I was, while I was praying, I suddenly thought, God, I'm in a church pastored by a black man. <laughs> and uh, I, I just thought, you know what, maybe. Now, let me just say this. When I came to this church, when I, when I first um, stepped down from pastoring a church after 30 years, and I, my wife and I were looking for where to go to church, it was really pretty much between two places from the very beginning. 
there was either Calvary Life or the Foursquare Church in Halton City, which that's a Hispanic church. Um, and, we, um, and we also consider maybe going to Weatherford and another very good friend of mine that pastored. That, those churches were the places that I pretty much settled on because they were pastored by friends. Pastor Gwynmar and Pastor Yolanda have been friends for many years. They, in fact, were in our home before they ever started the church. <laughs> and Pastor Gwynmar and I met on a monthly basis with about five other pastors. We met every month, and we talked, and we shared, and we prayed, and we cried, and we, and we just had life together. It was a great time. So I just, this was one of the places that I was going to definitely consider coming to. And we felt like God led us here. So I, I don't know how to say what I'm going to say other than just to say it. The fact that he was black never was, it was a non-factor. It wasn't like, I want to go to that church because the pastor's black. It wasn't like that. But there was also no hesitation to go to the church because he was black. In fact, it was just, I never even thought about it. I know he's black, but I never think about him. <laughs> but I just, I wasn't, it was just a non-factor until last week when I was in prayer and, the, and I just felt like the Lord brought it to my heart. You're in a church, pastored by a black man. And what I felt like the Lord was saying to me was, we can be a part of the answer. We... We could be a part of the answer. Is what is what I just felt like the Lord put in my heart. So facing the facts, I think that we need to deal with reality that we're up against. I think that, and I, I'm not going to talk about what those realities are this morning. Pastor Gwynmar has called for some roundtable discussions where we just kind of get things out in the open and talk about things and lay them on the table and, and be honest. And, and, um, and we're going to actually start it off by he and I having some of those conversations. And, and, some, and, and sometimes those conversations, might, they might be a little uncomfortable. They'll always be filled with love and graciousness, but they're gonna, they could become uncomfortable. One thing I do want to say, I do, I do want to say this. I think we need to unplug from the media. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, my wife and I don't even have television, but, but I do read the news online. And, and when I read the news, I think, I don't think this is reality. I, I don't think that the vast majority of white Americans are hopelessly unrepentant racists. I just, I don't really believe that. I don't think the vast majority of black Americans are violent and belligerent and ready to tear the place down. <laughs> I don't think Pastor Glenmar is. <laughs> and so I think it's, I just think that we need, if we're going to really face what we really are dealing with, we need to unplug from the media. 
and, and, and do some honest assessing. Where are we really? And, and then we can move forward. But the, the disciples, they didn't pull any punches. To th this is what we're up against. Th this is reality. They're threatening us, and we know what these guys can do. We know what they did to Jesus. And so I think we as a church need to say, okay, this is what we're up against. Here, here's, here's what we're dealing with. Now what are we going to do with it? Amen? You guys with me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me just kind of wrap it up. The, um, now let's talk about what they did. They prayed. First of all, they met together for prayer. They laid it on the line. And then they prayed, but they prayed a prayer of worship. I was so thrilled. I'm probably not just that close to wrapping it up. <laughs> Thanks for your diligence, but I probably jumped the gun. <laughs> uh, I was so thrilled with, I can't remember which song it was now, the first one, I think, but that in the, in the middle of our storm, we, we worship the Lord. And when these guys prayed, I want you to notice their prayer. Verse 24. When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, <laughs> who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They began with worship. They, they have just laid it on the line. We, our very existence is at stake. Okay, just stay with me on this. Our very existence is at stake. And then they started to pray, and what did they pray? They worshiped God. They worshiped. And they worshiped God as the creator. God as creator is foundational to all of our faith. We take away God the creator, we've taken away faith. In, in 1991, I went through a very intense crisis of faith. We had had a very tragic loss in our lives, and, and it wasn't like I was angry at God. That wasn't it at all. I just wasn't sure that he was there. And in fact, my, the one emotion that I felt was fear, because I thought, wow, if God's not real, I, I have to start life totally over because that's all I knew was God. My whole life was based on God. And I remember sitting, it was a Tuesday morning, I remember that, 1991, and I sat in my chair with my Bible and I just said, God, I don't even know if you're real. And the only place I know really to go is the Word. And I don't really know where to start there, so I'm going to start in Genesis. Well, I'm glad I did. Because the reality of the creation and the need for a creator, the absurdity of, of any other option became so clear to me. If I were to tell you that it was so weird. I mean, this past week, 
there was this huge explosion in this field, and this building just came up. <laughs> I mean, the lights were in place. The basketball goal was there. Bathrooms were in place. I mean, it was just amazing. Just this explosion, and boom, this amazing building just was here. Well, you would think I was crazy. Well, that's what, they, that's what we're supposed to believe about the world. That there was just this explosion, and no one tells us where the things that came from that exploded came from. <laughs> so that's another whole story. And that out of this explosion came this amazing, perfectly created world. And that, that was just absurd. I couldn't believe that. And so the reality of God as creator is what saved my faith. Saved my faith. And they worshiped. Why did they worship God as creator? Because their faith was on the line. God, you're the creator. They worshiped God. And then they, had, they petitioned God. And I'm just trying to hurry, but I won't want to hurry too much. Then they petitioned God. And their petition is amazing. What they didn't ask for, they didn't ask for God to deliver them from their problem. They didn't even ask God to protect them. Here's what they asked. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. All that they were worried about. <laughs> Think about it. They're facing extinction. And all they're worried about is, God, help us keep ministering the word. Help us be faithful to preaching the word. And they weren't talking about in church either. They were talking about preaching the gospel outside of church. They were talking about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. They were so concerned that their crisis, now listen to me, that their crisis not stop them from preaching the word of God. And we as a church, I pray God will give us that passion, that what will burn in our hearts isn't God protect me from COVID. Yes, I want to be protected from COVID and I want you protected from COVID. But it's not our prayer. Our prayer is God, help us be faithful to preach the word. Help us be faithful to continue ministering the gospel to the world. Help us be faithful. Well, God's response was to fill them with the Holy Spirit again. <laughs> again, he filled them with the Spirit. And they preached the word of God with boldness. And I think the one thing that's, that's really interesting to me is that in other places where revival broke out, it's recorded as in people being saved. It's recorded in, as in people being healed and delivered. But in this case, it's recorded as great love being outpoured, that people began to meet the needs of every single person. People with property sold property and brought the money and gave it to the church. I think that's very interesting, that the evidence of the revival 
was tremendous brotherly love. Amen. Wow. Praise the Lord. Well, so all I wanted to do today was to help us set the table and say, God, here we are. We're the church. We could hide in a corner. We could bury our heads in the sand. We could try to pretend like the world's not in crisis. Or we could face it. We could deal with it. We could call out to you, Lord. And we could, we be, we could become salt to a very, very desperate world. We become light to a very dark world. We really have a choice. We have a choice as individuals. I think, I think a lot of us just wish it all go away, right? We just wish it go away. <laughs> Amen. But, but that's wishing it isn't going to make it happen. So we as individuals and as a church, we need to decide, how are we going to respond to our crisis? How are we going to respond to the crisis in the nation? You can come down, Caitlin. Thank you. How are we going to respond to the crisis in the nation? And I don't know. I don't know. We hope this message was impactful to you. If you would like to hear more, please remember to subscribe. For more information, you can visit our pages on both Facebook and Instagram. God bless you and have a great rest of the week.